0: to create a listener account, and in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening, so you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat, and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Biography. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, I'm talking with Richard A. Billows about his... Hello everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Biography. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, I'm talking with Richard A. Billows about his study of the legend and legacy of Alexander the Great entitled, Before and After Alexander. Richard, welcome to the show. Hello. I wonder if you could start us off by telling us something about yourself.
1: Well, um, I'm originally from England, but have been living in the United States since 1980. Uh, I've been a professor of Greek and Roman history at Columbia University since 1985, um, and uh, I teach a variety of courses there. Um, I like to uh, study a variety of different subjects having to do with the ancient Greeks and Romans, but certainly one of the subjects that I've worked on a lot is what we call the Hellenistic world which is the phase of ancient Greek civilization uh, in which they spread out to cover the entire Eastern Mediterranean and Western Asia um, from uh, roughly modern day uh, Afghanistan uh, to the Mediterranean and down to, uh, into North Africa, uh, Egypt and Libya um, in this uh, vast kind of civil sphere of civilization um, and of course uh, that, that expansion of the greek world is associated uh, in the popular memory above all with the name of alexander the great um hence the uh, the title of my book
0: what what was it that led you to write this book about his uh reputation and his legacy in particular
1: uh well um I've been reading a great deal about Alexander for nearly 40 years, um, and uh, he has an immense reputation uh, as this pivotal, seminal figure. Uh, And the more I read about him, uh, the more it seemed to me that his reputation was greatly exaggerated. Um, I wanted to get at the question of how was it possible uh, for this young man who was 20 at the time when he began uh his career of conquests uh to uh undertake this uh, this extraordinary campaign all the way across western asia and north africa uh that he did uh where did his army come from uh how was he able to uh engage in these fantastic marches and and battles um, and uh, that led me to, uh, to look in detail uh, at the development of his home country, Macedonia, in northern Greece, um, and how the Macedonians came to be a sufficiently strong power uh, to undertake this campaign of conquest. In addition, um, when I was a graduate student, I became interested in um the uh, the phase in which uh this uh vast area that had quickly been conquered by Alexander was turned into a series of functioning empires under the so-called successors of Alexander uh, and I was aware of how much work they had to put into uh transforming um a simple act of conquest into an ongoing uh, system of states uh, with a defined civilization and culture um, and uh, so it just seemed to me that that story of uh, how the Macedonians came to be capable uh, of doing what they did under alexander 's leadership um, and how. Uh, The really hard work uh, of turning a brief act of conquest into uh, a functioning state system and civilization um, should be brought out much more strongly, uh, showing that Alexander was really a pivoting point rather than this extraordinary uh, creative figure that he's often presented as being. One of the things you do in your book is you show
0: also how the two are connected, how the shape of the Alexandrian legacy is determined by that base that he inherits. So I want to take us back a bit to the base that you describe, And one of the things that you do is you don't just start with Alexander's father, Philip, you actually go back and describe a bit about the kingdom that uh, emerged prior to uh, their reigns. So what was uh, Macedonia like, and what were the uh, assets that led both Philip and then Alexander to achieve all that they did?
1: Well, this is the uh, the really interesting and fascinating part of the story to me, is that Macedonia before the time of Alexander's father, Philip II, uh played only a very minor and peripheral role in ancient Greek history. Uh, During the great period of what we call classical Greek civilization, uh, when Greeks were dominated by the great city-states of Athens and Sparta, uh, Macedonia was uh, an unimportant and largely unregarded backwater Uh, in in terms of um, the sort of the power politics of the era. Um, And yet that disguised the fact that Macedonia actually had a fairly significant role um, because uh, city-states like Athens and Sparta needed a variety of natural resources in order to be able to do what they did. They needed metals, they needed timber, they needed grain. Uh, to feed their populations. Um, And Macedonia was really the only region in the Greek world, per se, uh, that uh, produced large quantities of timber um, and of various metals for export. Um, The Greeks were able to import timber and metals uh, from elsewhere outside the Greek world proper, but Macedonia was within Greece and had surpluses of these... Uh, products that were crucial especially to Athens Um, and what that meant was that the uh, the more advanced city-states of southern Greece constantly interfered in Macedonia and by their interference helped to keep Macedonia weak because a weak Macedonia was uh, easy for them to exploit Uh, So it it was really interesting to see that this region of Greece that in terms of its natural resources had great potential uh, failed to develop that potential into any kind of uh, actual uh, power or significant role other than as a source of natural resources uh, in the Greek history of that time. Um, And, of course, that then highlights um, the the work that uh, Philip II did uh, in transforming a place that had had no significant uh, power or impact before his time um, into the dominant uh, state and power in the Greek world.
0: One of the things you do in those early chapters is not just describe Macedonia, but you also highlight that contrast. It's not just that Macedonia has, is this uh, great base of resources, but also how it, how it, the uh, contrast with the Greek city states, which are oftentimes very much on the borderline of survival in terms of their climate, uh, their condition. And, and it really, conveys the sense that Macedonia, as, as you've already alluded to, was something of a sleeping force in terms of the politics of the region.
1: It was a sleeping force. It, it had the manpower resources. It had timber. It had uh, uh, abundant food supply compared to the rest of Greece at that time. Most of the Greek cities had to import substantial quantities of food. Macedonia seems to have been not only largely uh, self-sustaining, but actually a net exporter of food. Uh, it had the metals, which were very scarce elsewhere in Greece. What it lacked, of course, was organization, um, and, and that's uh, really uh, the key. What The interesting thing about the Greek city-states is the way that places that, um, in terms of resources, were undoubtedly very poor, um, by their organization um, fulfilled their human potential in extraordinary ways, Uh, the city-state culture with collective systems of political decision-making, collective systems of um, security and defense, uh, and attack for that matter in warfare. Uh, A Greek city-state was able to mobilize an extraordinary percentage of its manpower for war when necessary. Um, You know, a a modern state like America, for example, uh, when America is at war, we don't really mobilize more than a couple of percents of our potential manpower uh, to go and fight. Uh, When Athens was at war, uh It was not unusual for it to mobilize as much as fifty per cent of its manpower uh to go and fight and that's an extraordinary um ability that these city states had um Macedonia because of the nature of its organization as a uh a land dominated by a traditional land owning aristocracy who fought on horseback um was more in line with uh, modern types of states in that uh, for warfare it mobilized only a small percentage of its manpower and in order for macedonia to be able to compete in the international power politics of that time it had to find a way to be able to mobilize much more than that small percentage and that's what philip ii found a way to do
0: Given the role that Philip second plays, I was wondering if you could uh, elaborate a bit upon uh, who he was and what it was that led him to undertake this effort to mobilize Macedonia. And having mobilized Macedonia, what does he then uh, do with this developed strength that he uh, has, has created? Mm.
1: Uh, Philip came from the, the ruling family Uh, of uh, the Macedonian uh, realm. It's a kind of a tribal kingdom uh, with uh, a family with uh, sort of multiple branches uh, competing for uh, rule over the region. Um, His father uh, came from a branch of the uh, ruling family that uh, had not played a major role Uh, in the previous two generations, but he succeeded in making himself the ruler and with various uh, ups and downs, he was almost kicked out a couple of times, managed to cling on to the position of of ruler for nearly 20 years uh, and pass it on to his sons. Philip was the third son uh, and clearly could not have expected ever to be the ruler himself, since he had two older brothers who came before him. uh, It so happened that his two older brothers uh, both died very young, uh, violently, as many early Macedonian rulers did. Um, And Philip unexpectedly found himself in the position of being able and needed to take over as ruler when he was about 24 years old. Um, in the wake of a terrible military disaster, uh, his uh, second brother uh, named Predikas, uh had go- gone to war against a neighboring non-Greek people called the Illyrians, um, and uh, not only managed to get defeated, but the defeat was, um, it, it basically destroyed the Macedonian army, such as it was at that time. Um, with the result that uh, something like a quarter of Macedonia was occupied by these Illyrians from roughly modern-day Albania, Um, and seeing an opportunity, uh, other neighboring peoples uh, invaded Macedonia from three other directions as well, Um, And you had a situation in which Macedonia seemed to be on the verge of ceasing to exist uh, as any kind of functioning um, community or state. It was apparently going to be taken over uh, and ruled by neighboring peoples, divided up. Um, And for whatever reasons, Philip had a remarkable personality, obviously, Um, he decided that not only was he not going to accept that, uh, he made it his task to prevent that from happening, but also then to go on and find a way to prevent that kind of a situation from ever occurring again. Um, He saw, was able to see, that Macedonia had uh, great resources and great potential Um, And he didn't want uh, uh, his homeland to be uh, the the weak plaything of stronger neighboring powers that it had been throughout his life uh, under his father and under his two older brothers. Uh, And his problem was to find a way in which to fully express uh, the potential strength that Macedonia had. Uh, And it's often been suggested, and I think rightly, that a crucial role was played here by the fact that uh, when he was in his teens, uh, Philip was sent as a hostage uh, to the southern Greek city-state of Thebes for three years, uh, at a time when the Thebans uh, were revolutionizing Greek warfare. Uh, and dominating most of Greece for uh, a period of about 10 years. Uh, Thebes, a city-state that had always played a secondary role before. And seeing what these extraordinary Theban leaders were doing in changing the nature of warfare uh, and turning a 2nd rank power into the dominant power in the Greek world, I think... um, had an impact on Philip in in suggesting to him that the same kind of thing could be done with Macedonia, uh, change the way in which we fight warfare, um, so as to maximize uh, the resources that Macedonia has, uh, and thereby uh, enable Macedonia to show strength rather than weakness. How are the Thebans revolutionizing
0: warfare? And How did Philip incorporate that into the Macedonian forces?
1: Um, Greek warfare for 200 years had been pretty static. Uh, It was based on a collective system in which uh, what we call citizen militia soldiers, that is to say, citizens uh, acting in a military role uh, at their own expense and as a matter of honor and pride and duty uh, on behalf of their community. So uh, a, a Greek soldier was just a citizen who equipped himself with military equipment, uh, saw to uh, learning a basic familiarity with the use of that equipment um, and the kind of military formation in which he would be expected to use it, Uh, maintained his own fitness, and that's why the Greeks developed this athletic gymnasium culture that they're famous for. Um, And then, you know, whenever occasion called for it, thousands of these Greek citizen militia soldiers would march out together uh, and literally take a stand on behalf of their community. Um, And the style of warfare was basically uh, very, very stereotyped. Uh, thousands of men would simply arrange themselves uh, with the help of uh, their leaders into neat lines and uh, and files of men um and uh, the role of the general uh, was to get the the men organized properly into their formation that was called a phalanx um and then it was just up to the men themselves to stand their ground and try to push the enemy back. Um, So it didn't require any outstanding leadership or any particular inventiveness uh, or daring. It was a very collective system that relied on discipline. Um, And the Spartans dominated this kind of warfare for a couple of hundred years because whereas in other Greek city-states, um the citizens you know had regular lives they were farmers they were carpenters they were smiths or fishermen or whatever uh who took down their armor you know and put it on and went out to fight when the need arose uh in sparta the spartans uh, had a peculiar socioeconomic system in which The Spartan citizens dedicated themselves 100% to being warriors uh, and warriors alone, which made them much more expert at this kind of fighting than anyone else. And the problem that the Theban leaders had was how not to be beaten by these Spartans. uh, And they had been beaten by not only Spartans, but Athenians too, many times in their history. Um, This new generation of Theban leaders realized if we change the formation uh, in which we fight, um, we can be more than a match uh, for the Spartans. Instead of, uh, if there are, say, 2,000 Spartans confronting them with 2,000 Thebans uh, and hoping that we can outfight them, Uh, What happens if we confront 2,000 Spartans with 6,000 Thebans uh, and attack them with some men on horseback from the side at the same time? Um, It seems like a very simple idea, and I think it is a very simple idea, it's just that no one had had it for 200 years. (laughs) Um, And suddenly the Thebans defeated the Spartans, who were always regarded as invincible. Um, and, uh, by defeating the Spartans, suddenly the Thebans are the dominant military power in Greece until everyone else realized it's just that they've rethought the formation and we can do that too. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that gave, I think, to Philip the idea that, uh, in the first place, you know, there's nothing set in stone about, uh, military strength or weakness for 200 years the spartans were invincible and then you know these theban leaders had a new idea um, and they showed that they're not invincible after all um so there's probably a way in which we macedonians can stop being weak and easily beaten by everyone um and become strong um and uh, it's it's just a matter of figuring out You know, what advantages do the Macedonians have? How can we express strength? What do we need to do, um, you know, to um, present ourselves on the battlefield in a position where we can win the way that the Thebans did against the Spartans? So Philip
0: applies himself to this, and he organizes uh, Macedonia. What does he then uh, set out to accomplish and how successful is he?
1: Uh, Extraordinarily successful. Um, The key thing, what prevented the Macedonians from being successful in the kind of warfare that uh, the Southern Greeks had been fighting for 200 years was uh, the lack of um, a well-to-do middle class. As I've mentioned, these citizen militia soldiers of southern Greece equipped themselves with their military equipment, and it was quite expensive. Uh, So these soldiers are all reasonably well-to-do middle class men um, with farms and small businesses and so on. Carpenters, smiths, I mentioned that. Uh, who could afford to purchase the armor and equipment uh, that you needed to fight in this distinctive, collective Southern Greek style. And Macedonia, because it was a land dominated by uh, large landowners um, uh, and a uh, subordinated uh, class of... Uh, peasants who worked as uh, a kind of serfs or at best as um, tenants and sharecroppers on the lands owned by the rich didn't have that kind of middle class. So Philip had to figure out a way in which he could mobilize um, thousands and thousands of soldiers, and there were plenty of men in Macedonia Uh, but they could not equip themselves with the armor required to do the Southern Greek style of fighting. So the problem was, what do we have that can substitute for that? Um, And very smartly, he recognized that what Macedonia had in abundance was timber. Um, And traditionally, uh, extraction of timber in Macedonia was controlled by Uh, The ruler. Uh, The ruler determined uh, who was allowed to extract timber and how much and on what terms. Which meant that as ruler, Philip could get lots and lots of timber just for the sake of sending men out to cut it. Um, And what he did was to develop a new kind of weapon, uh, what in modern terms is called a pike. The ancient Greek term was sarissa. Sarissa. Uh, where southern Greeks wore a lot of body armor that protected them extremely well and used an eight-foot thrusting spear as their offensive weapon. Uh, Philip uh, produced thousands of 16 to 20-foot pikes um, and equipped men with them, uh, which he could do, uh, because, as I said, as ruler, he had the right to cut timber. Um... And uh, the advantage of a 16 to 20-foot pike is that you didn't need a lot of body armor uh, because you stuck the head of your pike against the enemy's shield um, and with his 8-foot spear, he couldn't reach you. (laughs) Um, You you have a a great
0: uh, picture in your book which illustrates just how much of an advantage that is. You have the... uh, southern greek hoplite uh reenactor with uh his both the javelin and a spear and it's pretty clear that uh the macedonian sarissa has is you know, just gives the the warrior uh you know he just has such an advantage in terms of being able to attack without worrying about being attacked in reverse because the greek the hoplites didn't use their spears as as
1: throwing spears they used them as as, as stabbing spears right exactly um, so, uh, he was able to, uh, very quickly, uh, recruit 10,000 men and equip them with these pikes. Um, it's, it's, uh, a, a weapon that requires a dense formation because one man with one of these things, you could easily slip past the head of his pike, uh, and get at him personally from close range. And since he has virtually no body armor, he's very vulnerable. Uh, but if you've got 10,000 men equipped with these pikes all in a dense formation, um, as long as they're drawn up in a place where it's not easy to get around the side of them or come at them from behind, if you have to come at them from in front, um, you know, it's kind of like uh, trying to pick up a porcupine. <laughs> it's uh, it's a bristling array of these uh, uh, pike heads sticking out at you uh, and you uh, can't easily get at the soldiers holding the pikes um and with this formation um and with the uh, Macedonian cavalry the Macedonians had always been good with cavalry um because that was the uh, the expertise of these aristocrats who owned most of the land uh the problem is that uh you know a few thousand cavalry uh, are not very effective against uh, you know 10 or 15,000 heavily armored men who stand their ground um, once you have a, a dense formation of pikemen uh to take on these uh, um, uh, men standing their ground um and they can't come at you from the side because the cavalry are protecting you there uh now you suddenly have a military system that has a chance uh, of standing up against um, the the neighboring powers of Macedonia. Um, and under Philip's leadership, in fact, they did more than stand up; uh, they started to win. And over the course of a 24-year reign, um, they won spectacularly. Uh, Philip led his armies to victories throughout the southern Balkan Peninsula against uh, people called the Thracians, who lived in modern-day Bulgaria and Romania, against Illyrians, who lived in modern-day Serbia and Albania, uh, and, of course, against the southern Greeks. Uh, And the result is that when Philip died uh, in 336, uh, suddenly assassinated, by a disgruntled officer and his bodyguard who had a personal grudge. Uh, He was only 47 at the time, uh, Philip, that is. Uh, When Philip died, uh, Macedonia uh, either directly ruled or dominated um, pretty much the whole region from the great Danube River um, south, uh, the Balkan Peninsula, uh, from, as I've said, uh, Serbia Uh, and Albania, and Romania, Bulgaria, down to, um, you know, the Aegean Sea, all of Greece. Um, And uh, it was that power block, uh, that extraordinary army uh, with a two-decade-long history of unbroken success, um, uh, and above all, Uh, a group of officers who had been trained by Philip uh, over those 20 years how to command uh, that army in battle, Um, that is what Alexander inherited, and that's what enabled Alexander seemingly out of nowhere um, to go across and invade the Persian Empire um, and uh, engage in all those conquests.
0: And that gets to the uh, uh, the this, this central focus of or central argument in your book, which is the degree to which Alexander's uh, achievements are built not upon uh, his you know u- uh, any sort of unique ability or, 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 or success that he has, but that it's built upon this achievement of his father's, the the army, the the kingdom, the the. The, the the generals that are there to serve him you detail when you're describing alexander the degree to which so many of his achievements during his Famed conquests are the result of the tactics employed and 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 the uh, and the army that he used You also and you you, you bring it to this question uh, which I thought was very fascinating uh,
1: of, of analyzing what exactly makes alexander great well exactly um when you think of rulers through history who are called the great, they usually have a number of different kinds of achievements to their credit. They are uh reformers, they are uh organizers of of their peoples and and state systems. Um they create new legal codes, they uh bring changes Um, to their societies in various ways and improvements. Um, Alexander uh, is called the great for really one reason only so far as one can see uh, and that is the pure act of conquest uh, because he didn't live long enough uh, to do anything with those conquests beyond the sheer fact of conquering Uh, and it's really not clear uh, in what we know of him Um, that he had any particular ideas of what to do with all these lands that he'd conquered. Um, He seems to have enjoyed the sheer act of conquest for its own sake. Uh, And when we consider how he did that conquering, uh, he inherited uh, the the best army in the ancient world Um, with an unbroken tradition of 20 years of outstanding success Uh, fighting uh, with a kind of weaponry and in a kind of system that had proved itself better than any other that was available at the time. Um, And uh, he himself had been trained from the age of 13 uh, by his father in how this army worked, how this military system worked, how battles should be organized and fought, Um, how he should lead. Uh, And uh, he also inherited along with the army and with the training that he himself got from Philip, uh, a group of dozens of senior officers who had received the same training as himself under Philip. Uh, That training in how do you command the various units of an army in a plan of battle. Uh, that takes advantages of the strengths that the Macedonians had, of the weaknesses of the enemy, and of the possibilities of the terrain. Uh, Philip had developed a whole system for this, and it was a system that he passed on to his various officers, uh, and that includes, of course, Alexander. Now, Alexander had obviously great charisma himself, um, he understood his father's military system perfectly and he had the ability to carry it out and the uh, the, the leadership characteristics to impose himself on what was really uh, a remarkable group of men, uh, uh, Philip's officer corps. Um, but it's also true, of course, that uh, uh, he inherited Philip's mantle um, and, uh, all these uh, extraordinary officers deferred to him because, uh, as long as he showed he had the ability to do what was needed, they had little choice but to, um, that the army had a fanatical loyalty to its creator, Philip, uh, and, uh, as a result also, uh, to Philip's son and successor. Um, so uh Alexander's leadership was never really challenged um so, so long as he was able to uh, to show that he uh, basically knew what he was doing uh, and there's no doubt that he did know what he was doing as a as a military leader um there's not much question uh, I mean that there's there's a reason to question whether he had uh, anything more going for him than understanding how to be a good military leader um and And I myself uh, wonder whether that's really what we want to consider as a standard of greatness today um but you know people have to judge that for themselves one of the points you make in the book that
0: uh people might uh think about as they are uh listening to this is they non-military legacy that sometimes identified the most visible example today being the cities from kandahar in the east to alexandria in egypt and so forth all these uh these uh cities that were established within the uh territory that alexander conquered and you make the point that that leads us to talking about you know, what happens after his death, which is that though they are, so many of these cities are named after him to one degree or another, they aren't necessarily cities that he himself has established. Exactly.
1: Um, and uh, I think that's uh, a, a crucial point. Um, what makes the Hellenistic civilization what it was is the spread of Greek uh city planning greek style cities uh, with greek-speaking populations it's open to question how many of them actually have any uh, origins in greece Um, but certainly they they were greek-speaking and they lived according to the traditional by that point classical greek lifestyle uh involving going to the gymnasium going to the theater to watch plays um, having uh, collective uh, self-governing systems, uh, and so on. Uh, those cities are overwhelmingly built um, between uh, 320 and 280 or 270 BCE, in that rough 50-year period, which is after the time of Alexander, um Uh, Alexander began the process. Uh, What he really did was to found a dozen or so garrison colonies in what is today Afghanistan and to give orders that a city be founded in Egypt uh, at Alexandria. Um, But Alexandria was actually built uh, by Alexander's successor, the uh, Egyptian ruler Ptolemy, um and it was really alexander's successors who um over that 50-year period um partly imported um, probably in excess of a hundred thousand people uh, from greek lands into western asia uh, and egypt uh, and settled them uh, in what became greek cities Uh, and partly also incorporated uh, elements of the native population into these Greek cities and uh, allowed and encouraged them uh, to become Greek by learning the Greek language, taking Greek names, and adapting themselves to the the Greek urban lifestyle. Um, And what you get at the end is uh, um, a civilization in Western Asia and Egypt where there are um, many, many dozens of Greek cities built on the model of essentially classical Athens, um, with um, mostly the rectangular grid um, system of urban planning that we know from places like Manhattan, for example, in you know New York, uh, you know, uh, big avenues running parallel to each other, and then smaller cross streets, uh, crossing them at a 90-degree angle, roughly, also parallel to each other, with key public spaces sited within that grid. Um, And uh, the process of doing that is uh, undertaken, essentially, by um, three great successors of Alexander, uh, who took over the bulk of his empire uh, within a few years of his death? Um, Antigonus the One-Eyed, Seleucus the Victorious, and Ptolemy the Savior. Uh, these guys like to have picturesque nicknames, <laughs> <laughs> um, but partly that it comes from uh, the fact that uh, they 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 were so. Impressive and important as foundational figures um, in what we call the Hellenistic world, that their successors as rulers (laughs) basically named themselves after these founders. So, in Egypt, for example, you have the Macedonian general Ptolemy uh, founding this kingdom and building the city of Alexandria. Uh, and then you have 15 other rulers after him, all named Ptolemy, Ptolemy the second, the third, the fourth, the fifth, the sixth. They all have to be named Ptolemy because Ptolemy is really the uh, the extraordinary founding figure who they all hark back to and who gives them uh, their claim to power. Um, and in Western Asia, you have a whole series of kings named Seleucus after the first Seleucus Uh, and likewise you have a dynasty of kings who use the name Antigonus after the first Antigonus. Um, So they're not uh, men who are particularly famous now, uh, but they are men who had an enormous impact, not only in their own lifetime in being able to uh, do this extraordinary organizing work, um and creating this new civilization um uh but who were also uh, just uh, enormously uh, powerful figures in the the popular imagination uh for the next uh, 2 to 3 centuries uh of course what happened eventually is that the romans moved in and took over this whole area, and it became the Eastern Roman Empire, um, and then the memory of these uh, Hellenistic rulers kind of faded um, because of the uh, the extraordinary dominance and success of the Romans, um, uh, and the one figure who sort of uh, maintained his fame uh, was Alexander, and I think that's partly because of the the sort of the romance inherent in the fact that Alexander was only in his twenties uh when he uh carried out his conquests, and we tend to uh be very impressed by uh men who do extraordinary things when they're young and then die young, <laughs> you know with a sense of oh, you know what would they have done if only they'd lived for another you know thirty years. Uh, well who knows um, that's the that's what gives them that sense of uh, romantic appeal and there's also the reality that and 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 this is one of these extraordinary things about alexander um, of of all sort of known rulers in history uh, there are very very few, if any uh, who paid as much Intensely focused attention to their popular image. Um, He was a a ruler who believed from the moment he took over as king uh, and began on this campaign of conquest, uh, he wanted everyone to know about it and to see him as a superhuman figure. and he took with him uh basically propagandists of all sorts court historians court poets court philosophers court artists whose job uh was to prevent present him alexander and his actions uh as superhuman from the beginning um and uh I think that's possibly one of the, the, the things in which he, in fact, uh, was most successful, obviously, because uh, to this day, um, he's, he's still remembered as this superhuman figure uh, that he pres- presented himself as through his various um, official court propagandists.
0: And yet, I can't help but feel after reading your book, how much of that relies upon not just the propagandists, but the achievements of people like uh, Antigonid and Ptolemy and and, and, and Seleucid, because you describe how so much of what he had accomplished was unsustainable, projecting his power all the way to India for a resource base in Macedonia was not yeah. something that was going to endure. And yet, and, and so it was these men who in a sense took what could have been this incredibly impermanent uh, 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 entity, the, the Alexandrian empire. And while it doesn't survive intact, it definitely survives in a form that, it implies that it could have been a, a little different had he lived and at the very least endures long enough to to cement the achievement of those brief years of conquest.
1: Yes. Um, it, it it survived, of course, precisely because Alexander's successors were able to import enough Greek manpower, uh, probably well in excess of 100,000 people, Uh, brought over from Greek lands uh, to inhabit new cities in Western Asia, forming, in in essence, a kind of permanent garrison. Um, But also, you know, that Greek urban culture was very appealing in various ways. uh, And a lot of non-Greek people uh, acculturated themselves, that is to say, became Greek um, by going to live in these cities, learning the Greek language, taking Greek names, adapting themselves uh to the culture and the way of life uh and and uh, essentially becoming indistinguishable uh from the uh, originally Greek population um, without that uh you know an army of fifty thousand men can only be in one place at one time um and Uh, if you have to keep using it uh, in order to maintain power, you soon use it up. Um, You have to build uh, institutionalized mechanisms of control. And there's no sign that Alexander uh, gave any thought to that because he was still in the act of conquest. Um, But certainly also his successors very quickly took a series of decisions that made um, the, the the lands that they were going to rule more rational. Uh, one of the first things that Seleucus did um, uh, was to realize that, uh, you know, trying to hold on to what is today Pakistan made absolutely no sense. Um, and uh, when he was engaged in warfare there with a local uh, Indian ruler, um, named Chandra Gupta, who eventually founded quite a big empire in India, the Maurya Empire um, Seleucus so basically looked to make a deal um, You can have these lands um, just give me something in exchange for them so that I can pull out with uh, you know uh, keeping my my image and in, uh, uh, intact. Uh, and what Seleucus came away with was 500 Indian war elephants. Um, in return for which he ceded basically the entirety of what is today Pakistan, which Alexander had conquered, but which Seleucus realized there's no way for us to hold on to this. It's <laughs> it's absurdly far away from our home bases. Um, uh, Greeks don't want to live here. Um, uh, just get out and hold on to the lands that make sense. And the lands that it really made sense to hold on to um, were uh, Mesopotamia, modern-day Iraq, and then west of that, today, Syria, Palestine, uh, Turkey, and Egypt. The lands, that is to say, that were close enough to the Mediterranean, um, that uh, Mediterranean peoples, uh, uh, which is what the Greeks were, uh, could effectively occupy and dominate them. We've taken up a lot of your
0: time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now?
1: Uh, I'm actually uh, um, working on a project um, sort of uh, several ye- hundred years uh, further down the line uh, in the history of the ancient world um, in the early stages of Christianity um, The rise of christianity occurred of course precisely in the cultural context of the hellenistic world Um, when you know uh, jesus successor so to speak paul traveled around spreading the good word Uh, he traveled around a greek-speaking world from one greek city to another addressing people in the greek language uh, about this wonderful new religion um, uh, so I've become quite interested in that. And uh, what I'm actually working on is, um, the branch of early Christianity called Gnosticism, um, the religion, the, the, the form of Christianity, uh, that emphasized, uh, uh revealed knowledge, um, over. Um, the, uh, the 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 Orthodox or what became called the Orthodox view um, that that is that became the mainstream form of Christianity. Um, the church fathers, as they're called, who developed what we call Orthodox Christianity, um, produced uh, a set of canonical writings that they declare to be the official texts uh, from which one understands what uh, the Christian religion uh, is and is to be understood as. We call it the New Testament. There's actually a whole set of alternative writings produced by um, Gnostic Christians. Um, And uh, it occurred to me that it would be interesting to uh, imagine Uh, What the New Testament would look like if the Gnostics had become the dominant uh, movement within Christianity So I'm putting together what I call uh, the New Testament and Gnostic Christian version Um, And it basically is is formatted like the traditional New Testament with four Gospels and a bunch of letters and uh, revelation writings um, but, uh, instead of the ones that everyone is familiar with, uh, they are Gnostic Christian gospels and letters and revelation writings. Um, and I think, uh, Gnosticism is, uh, an extraordinary, uh, interpretation of Christianity that has a lot to, uh, to say to the modern world. So, uh, I, I'm hoping that, that people will find it interesting to uh, to look at a work uh, that presents um, a kind of what might have been version of alternative version of Christianity. Well, it sounds like a very interesting project. Hmm. I, I like to think so. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, Richard Billows, thank you uh, very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have
1: a wonderful day. Thank you very much.